Hi, this is Nora Jones. I'm your host for this episode of The Language Imperative. And today's guest is Ophelia Wade, the Spanish Dual Language Immersion Director for the State of Utah and lecturer at the University of Utah. We're going to be taking a look in this conversation at how to provide students with opportunity. Where are they coming from? Where do we want them to go? And specifically taking a look at the unique experience of dual language immersion and the impact that it has on human brains, human spirits, and communities. We're going to take a look at motives and purposes and pathways behind these programs, successes and challenges too, but we'll take a look at it in this conversation through the lens of humans that are specifically affected in their identity and in the power of their potential impact on the world. Ophelia brings a compassion and a personal history as a bilingual person in the United States. She brings this viewpoint into those works that she has done over many years in providing workshops, presentations, as well as leadership in this field. Enjoy this conversation with Ophelia Wade. Thank you for tuning in to Vista's new podcast series, The Language Imperative. This podcast series is brought to you by Vista Higher Learning. As the largest language and literacy publisher in the United States, Vista's singular focus is developing language and literacy solutions that meet the needs of all learners. Those learning a new language, improving an additional language, or perfecting their native language. Vista Higher Learning is committed to growing and innovating with you, ensuring that you have the tools to meet the needs of all your students. It is my great joy to bring to you today Ophelia Wade, the Spanish Dual Language Immersion Director for the State of Utah and a lecturer at the University of Utah. Welcome, Ophelia. Thank you, Nora. I appreciate the opportunity to engage with you in a conversation about language and culture. I am so excited. I have always enjoyed so much your kindness, your gentleness, and your fierce advocacy for programs that are engaged in language. And I believe that the listening audience could hear that even in the kind way that you thanked me for being on today. I would like to ask you to begin by describing briefly to the listening audience what it is that you do and as this director and as a lecturer, what are the focus of the work that you do that's relevant for this language community that's listening today? Thank you, Nora. Well, um, I have to say that I am living my dream in my role as a director of the Spanish Immersion Programs in Utah. And I also like to say that mine is a small part of a much larger team effort that I would love to have you to capture the image of that. Because whenever we think about making and really promoting the importance of language in a systemic way, we have to recognize that no one person is capable of doing that effectively for the children that we service. 
uh, that it's usually a great group effort. Utah, it's uh, been successful in promoting a language program that is implemented statewide. It's a legislated program. And to get to that point, there was a great deal of team effort, not just from the educational community, but it was really a cross-section of community sectors and leaders that joined together with a focus on looking at the important role that language could play for the future of the state of Utah. Today, my role is to articulate the Spanish immersion curriculum, to uh, identify the resources that align and support that curriculum, to articulate the pedagogical practices that are needed to effectively reach our student population that are involved in the program, to develop partnerships that can expand our teacher pool, uh, highly, highly qualified teacher pool for our schools, to help screen and staff those schools, and uh, provide all of the professional training for our teachers, our school administrators, and our district administrators. That kind of encapsulates my role. Uh, because we do require uh, certifications or endorsements for our language, dual language teachers, we have certain courses that they must uh, complete. And one of those courses is the Foundations of Dual Language Immersion, which I developed uh, together with some colleagues here in the state. And so I focus uh, teaching that course at the University of Utah. My goodness, I am astonished just by that litany of responsibilities and areas of focus. I'll begin then by tapping on the word immersion, dual language immersion, helping those that are not necessarily familiar with that term what it means with regard to an educational program, and uh, what different forms it might take. So in our case, and I'm going to specifically address uh, the context here in Utah, uh, when we explored how we could bring language education into our state, implemented broadly across the state, we looked at the various models of language education. We focused specifically on immersion education, and we looked at the various models within immersion education. You may have heard models like 90-10, 80-20, 50-50. In the immersion education models, language is taught through content, and content is learned through a second language. So in our particular case, for the needs of our state, the characteristics of our population, we selected to support what is called the 50-50 model. That means that our students from the very beginning, starting in kindergarten or first grade, spend half of their day learning state articulated curriculum in a partner language that could be French. In our case, we have six languages. We have French, uh, Chinese, Portuguese, German, Russian, and Spanish. And the other half of the day, they learn the other half of that state articulated curriculum uh, in English. Uh, we do have a program, um, a program model 
that articulates which subjects are taught in which language across each of the grade levels. Now, this serves populations, presumably, that are of mixed languages themselves for students. Many of the listeners will live in areas in which the predominant language is English and where the typical content curricula is taught all in English all day long. So presumably then what we have here is the opportunity for English speakers to be learning a new language through the content that is a uh, through the content in a in a new language that's an area then that takes a tremendous amount of training per your reference to the educators and could you speak to that a little bit as well as to the sequencing then of content so that people can grasp some of the image of what's happening, please. Absolutely. Um, Teacher training is a critical component. Let me just frame that. If If there is a lesson to be learned from the efforts of any, whether it's a district, school, or in our case, state, trying to institutionalize a language program, such as dual language immersion, we must attend to the fact that we need to have a very systematic way of providing professional development from teachers, from their entry point as they move into that level as model teachers, we call it. Here in Utah, we have what we call a professional trajectory that articulates that the content of that professional development experience that a teacher has to have over their first three years when they join our program. And then after that, we move into a stage that we call the give back stage, where these teachers have reached a level as model teachers. And then we use their classrooms to train the beginning teachers We invite them to join with our state team to deliver curricula of uh, professional development uh, to model lessons. We go into their classrooms and record them as they implement the various instructional protocols or strategies that they've been trained to use in the second language classroom. And then they have access to other types of training that go beyond that basic core of sets of skills that those first three years literally take them to master. So that's to give you a picture of what that teacher training piece looks like. Uh, I think you also asked me to talk a little bit about the articulation of how the curriculum is, is specified. Um, for us uh, in grades one through three, Uh, We um, preserve the literacy block on the English side as a complete literacy block because that is the primary place where students are developing their literacy skills. And that is true for both a student whose first language is English as well as a student whose first language is Spanish. We retain that English block. On the partner language side, in this case, it would be Spanish or French or German or Russian or Portuguese. 
we have a, a block of about 50 minutes that is dedicated to develop the target, the, the partner language literacy. We do math in the partner language, social studies, and science in the partner language. When the students move up to fourth grade, we do a little bit of switch with the content areas. We move social studies to the English language because in most, in our state here, we study Utah history. And it seemed unauthentic to teach that in Chinese or Spanish or French. Spanish, not so much because Utah history has a lot of connection with Spanish, but Chinese or French is a little bit stretched. And then we bring it back in, uh, and also in the fifth grade, it is Utah history. So again, it seemed more authentic to teach it in English than in some of the, our other partner languages. And then in sixth grade is world history, world geography. So it's a perfect time to bring it back into the partner language and to teach it in a partner language. So that kind of gives you an example of the rationale we're using back and forth. We also move uh, social studies as much as possible into the partner language. We move math into the English language because the language that you use to teach and learn in social studies and even science has much more transferability across all contexts than the discipline-specific language that you use in math. Our model also um, builds in what we call a reinforcement in the opposite language. So if math is primarily being taught in Spanish, the English teacher has a reinforcement piece, which involves um, the reinforcement of the academic vocabulary of that discipline, science, for example, because our students are tested uh, with state tests uh, at the end of the year in math, and they need to be able to understand that academic language in both languages to be able to demonstrate the learning that they're doing, of conceptual learning they're doing in Spanish, for example. It doesn't have to be double taught. We do not double teach, but we do engage the students in some problem of the day or some type of um, kind of uh, uh, review, not review, but experience with math where they have to use that academic language in English, for example. When we move math to the English, side to be primarily taught in English, we do the same for that reinforcement in Spanish so that academic vocabulary can be continue to be elevated across the two languages. Now, this is a very careful, scaffolded, articulated plan that you have just described here briefly for us, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm going to presume that, just but let's make it overt, that the results in students' academic achievement in these various content areas, as well as the literacy in these two languages, meets the kind of state standards that that all uh, parents and stakeholders are looking for. Absolutely, Nora. You know that um, a parent is not going to enroll the child in a program, even if they're really champions of language and culture if they think they're going to sacri sacrifice the academic progress of the students. And that is one of the advantages that we have 
when we look at the plethora of research that is available, not just contextualized to Utah or to the United States, but even outside of the United States, that we do have 70 years of well-documented research showing that when immersion programs are well implemented, they are well articulated, they're proficiency based, that students who are involved in these programs not only acquire that desirable high levels of linguistic achievement in both the L1 and the L2, first language and second language, but they academically perform on par or better that the non-immersion students. And that has been the, the, the consistent results that we have seen here in Utah for all of our populations of students that are involved. I listened to these positive results and I wonder, you have provided on the Utah Dual Language Immersion website uh, it's utahdli.org, so that the listeners are aware of where they can go, that there is the data, the science behind understanding how this can work for the human brain, because I know that there are successful programs throughout the country and the world, including, of course, here in Utah, but that there are some for whom the idea that students could achieve and flourish in a dual language immersion like this seems like it couldn't be possible, that the brain couldn't handle it. Am I correct that there are resources on the website or other places you might send these listeners that we have today enjoying you? Uh, and do you have any specific kinds of data that you say briefly, this would really help? folks to understand what I mean. I think that the, the data that are the research that I'm going to share a research that I believe is posted on our website as well. But if you are not familiar with the um, Carla Institute, the Carla um, uh, bibliography that is available through the University of Minnesota, you will want to access that. That is what we have used to communicate and educate our parent community, our administrators, and our uh, both at the district and school level with the research compiled in that bibliography. It's an incredible bibliography of research available as to so many of these questions of, you know, how is it possible that students can learn content through a second language is there, is there a potential that they'll not be able to access that curriculum and get behind academically when they start early? Uh, will they not learn their first language as well if they're learning a second language? That is a fear of young parents who are considering the dual immersion program. So I'm going to say that's probably uh, the best place to go. You can do a search by topic and I can send that um, that uh, link to you, Nora, so that you can add it to the resources that I've sent you. I believe it is listed in our website as well under the administrators page, but just in case I'm going to send that to you. That is certainly a resource that we have used tremendously here in Utah. Uh, Thomas Collier has done a lot of writing uh, to document 
um, the tremendous benefits of engaging students in dual language immersion programs. And some of the writing started back in the 70s when they wrote what I call a seminal piece in our field, which was Language for All. I don't know if you remember that article that they wrote way, way back. And since then, they have replicated their studies and expanded the, um, the size of their, um, their um, pool of students that they have studied and really solidified that concept that they put out back in the 1970s uh, to um, very specific, tangible data documenting some of these questions that parents and administrators may have about, is it a risk to put my child in a program? Thank you so much for that clarity and also for the references that I'm confident that listeners will want to access. I'm actually going to back you up for just a moment. We have begun by making sure that everyone understands the basics of what uh, dual language immersion are all about and some of the aspects of the program. Let's uh, go back to some of the foundation. With so many things going on in people's lives and so many things for children to learn, why? What's the motive for dual language immersion? Why even bother? Such a great question. Such a great question. And I hope that I can be less biased and more objective as I address this question. Obviously, you can tell that I am a bilingual person and that my first language is Spanish. So for me, when I said I'm living my dream, it is truly my personal and my professional dream because I've had that firsthand experience of growing up as a bilingual person. So I'm going to try to infuse that in addition to the professional aspect. And I'm going to maybe address that question from the experience that we had here in Utah as a state in ad addressing that very question. Back in about 2006, we had a, a, a very visionary governor who was himself bilingual, who had had experience in using his but his his skills as a second language learner of Chinese in his in his uh, in his career as a commissioner of commerce for the United States, and who had seen the power of language in his own personal life and in his professional life, who was looking at the uh, future of the state from the perspective of a governor. Utah is a very landlocked state. And so, you know, how do you grow the vitality, the economic development of a state that is so landlocked? Uh, the state of Utah depends heavily on, on um, tourism, technology, and medical sciences uh, developments. And so all of those sectors have a tremendous link to that global economy. And as a governor, he knew that languages were going to play a really big part in sustaining that vitality and the growth of our state economy. So we were very lucky to bring together a very diverse of cross-sectional leaders from the governor, 
Uh, we brought some uh, business leaders. We brought some legislators, educational leaders, and parents. And we began to answer this question. And I think what we concluded was that languages had multiple, uh, multiple benefits that met the needs of all of those stakeholders. The business sector needed a multilingual workforce and a workforce that was comfortable with diversity of culture because we needed to be a welcoming place for our tourism. We needed to connect with colleagues in the tech and the medical field across the world. The, um, the governor and the legislative branch saw that as an incredible piece to sustain the vital growth of our state, um, economic uh, health. Um, then we had the educational leaders who looked at the benefits, the documented benefits of learning a language in terms of its educational benefits, the cognitive benefits. And then there were the humanists within that sector and the parents. Utah is uh, privileged in a way that we have a significant percentage of parents who they themselves have had a firsthand experience at learning a second language. And so they know that what that does for you. And they could see that the lives of their children were going to be enriched not just professionally, personally, because they had experienced that. I love the statement that uh, we have a former humanities dean from one of our local universities who I think captured that perspective so well by saying that when you learn a second language as an adult, it is an academic achievement. But when we give students the opportunity to learn a language as a child, we give them a voice in the human conversation. Now, that makes me just cry every time I hear it because as a, as a bilingual child, multilingual and multicultural child, I understand the profoundness of that statement. When you grow up as a young child, knowing two languages and being exposed to cultures, you literally learn to see more colors, to hear more voices, and to feel comfortable with the differences around you. You embrace those differences. You open yourself up to different perspectives. And you find a expanded and deeper connection with languages and cultures and people of different languages and cultures in ways that I don't think is possible unless you have the power of language and culture early on in your life. I've seen it happen here over and over again as we bring international teachers, connect them with our students, and all of a sudden we see communities who change their perspectives about people from those countries because of that firsthand experience that their children are having. So when we answer the question, why languages? Why languages? Because of all those reasons, for economic reasons, 
for social cultural reasons, for personal reasons. I call it that that triangulated rationale for why languages are a top priority in our educational system. I love sharing this perspective with parents and other leaders to see that um, you can't go wrong with equipping your students with the skills of being multilingual and multicultural to not just take advantage of opportunities domestically, internationally, but to have a hand at uh, opening those lines of understanding and appreciation for a very diverse global community. So beautifully said, Ophelia. Thank you. I wonder, this powerful experience, which you are speaking at from a state level, there are states and territories in the United States that could and may very well have heard this message about language instruction, dual immersion specifically. What response do you have at your state level from other states to this concept and to the results that that Utah is experiencing? Well, in our community, uh, and Nora, you probably understand when I, so let's help our listeners understand is that we are very lucky that there are many ways in which we connect professionally with colleagues across other states. Uh, We have organizations that connect our district leaders, that connect our teachers, and that connect our state leaders. And so um, in the same way that other districts in other states connect with our experience, we connect with theirs. Uh, We're constantly learning from what is happening in Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, um, you know, every state that is also sharing our objectives of promoting language education. So there are those channels to do that. Obviously, there is a great deal of interest from colleagues outside of Utah because Utah has been successful in institutionalizing language education at the state level, which is fairly difficult to do. Delaware is another state that has been successful in doing that. So we have colleagues who are constantly coming and learning from that experience, particular, it's, you know, how to institutionalize, how to, how to expand beyond the one site um, initiative. So yes, we do get a lot of positives. We have a lot of visitors who come and want to learn um, whenever possible after their visit, if they want to do something and contextualize it to their, to their situations, we provide, you know, continuous support. But uh, people are interested in wanting to do that. I think we've seen that, uh, for example, in California, when the opportunity came to again open up in the last few years, dual language immersion programs, there has been a furry of interest and desire to, um, to learn from each other across the United States, not just from Utah, but across from each other. And that is a great benefit that we have. There is tremendous benefit in looking at what we're all doing and learning from it. Thank you. When you're sharing, I'm sure you uh, storytelling about 
programs and potentially about individuals or small groups. What kinds of stories might you have shared with those, in fact, that we are talking about with the national sharing or that you would like to share with the listening audience today of of success and also of challenge? We could use both kinds of stories. If you could share, please. I love to do that. There is one story that captures one of our challenges and I think has uh, it's a moving story for me. Uh, so Utah is a state that has uh, some urban, you know, we have mostly urban school districts and then we have rural school districts. One of our objectives has been to make dual immersion accessible to both our urban and our rural districts. So sometimes some of our rural districts are serving, particularly in Spanish, they're serving migrant communities. And it is one of our goals to make sure that those students have access to the program because it. we know, if you read Collier's work, <laughs> that uh, that is probably the best option we can give to these students as far as a viable educational option. So we have a community about three hours from Salt Lake that has had historically a very vibrant um, migrant community for years, decades. And so we were really interested in getting them to see the possibilities of opening a program, and they did. It's been a And I'll tell you how successful it is by telling you this story. Uh, A few years back, the principal of the school gave me a call in the middle of the day. And that's usually the kind of call that I try to respond right away because it's usually an urgent issue. It needs to be addressed. And so I stepped out of my meeting and I went to address the principal. And I say, hey, Stacy, what's going on? What's happening? And she said, Ophelia, I need to tell you this story. I said, okay. You know, I sort of didn't know whether to prepare for the worst or what, you know, middle of the day. And she said, I just, I was in the cafeteria and there was a little bit of a rumble in my first grade table. So I directed myself to them because they were kind of getting a little agitated. And when I got there, I found that there was an argument among the students because one of my local English-speaking students was arguing that he was Mexican. And some of the other students were telling him that he is not. And uh, he said, I am Mexican because I speak Spanish like his, next, his buddy that was next to him, who is a native speaker of Spanish. And he put his arm around his little buddy and he says, I'm Mexican like you, right? I am Mexican like you. I speak Spanish. And the other kids were saying, no, you're not Mexican. And the little friend turned to him and said, yeah, you are Mexican too because you speak Spanish. And the principal just came back and cried. And she called me and said, I've been a member of this community for a long time. And being Mexican has never been something that our students have aspired to be. But now it is. And I think that touches my heart in the, oh my goodness, it, it's become such a motivator for me to think that as we discovered 
other languages and other cultures. We appreciate those differences in ways that we want to make them part of ourselves. To me, that's how we truly reach a sense of equality. I'm going to pair that up. I'm a, you started me t telling stories, and I have a lot of stories. Every year, we um, receive our international teachers from different countries, China, Taiwan, and it, we make it a big deal. We, we move into the airport, and we spend two or three days there receiving teachers. We have banners and all kinds of things, and we, may, we want to make sure they feel embraced by their receiving community. And one time we were there and for a long time, it was a delay flight and this very distinguished man um, kept watching and finally approached me and said, Hey, can you kind of tell me what's going on here? You've been here for a long hours and I see you welcoming people who are coming from all over. What, what's going on? And so I said, oh, thank goodness he asked. So I went on to tell him all of our program and thanked him for the opportunity to tell him and all of that. And as I shared with him, he became very um, emotional. I noticed that, you know, his eyes got a little teary and I thought oh my gosh I must have said something that offended this man so I started to back off and be a little bit more quiet and then he said this to me he said I am a general in the air force I have spent 40 years fighting for peace in the world and what I'm watching you do here today I want you to know is probably doing more for what I fought for in those 40 years. And I just fall with him. That was such a powerful reaffirmation that we're not just teaching language and culture, that we're teaching something greater than just language and culture, that we're teaching respect that we're teaching appreciation, interdependence on people who are different than us, but that have so much to offer to us. And I think if we can give that to this younger generation, that we will have leaders in the future in every sector of our communities that will have that perspective as a problem solve in their careers and in their you know, in their leadership roles in the future. To me, that is um, another reason why languages and culture are so important in, in our educational system. What powerful stories. And I can imagine, uh, because you moved me to tears here too, what that was like to have uh, that general in particular, that, that last story, to be able to share the impact that he perceived, especially from his perspective, and the embrace of humanity of that story of the two children in the cafeteria also is such a giver of hope. There are many initiatives in this country that are not just engaged in the educational space, Ophelia, but also in businesses and industries and organizations 
things like diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, justice aspects, uh, social emotional learning in our school systems. There are so many of these initiatives that are designed to grapple with some of the challenges and promise of multicultural uh, societies as we have them. Can you connect with your expertise the nature of such things as the dual language immersion experience and what it does with some of these initiatives? Is it complementary? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's at the crossroads of where we are right now. I think that as a, as a language and culture program, we can create an incredible link with those other initiatives that are being promoted by other agencies. Uh, what I always see is that with, whenever we open an immersion program in communities that are sometimes divided or not connected, the program serves a critical role in creating those links and connections or bringing people together that have not been brought together before. And then when you connect with these other initiatives that either come from a business or social uh, community social service uh, perspective, and we connect them, sometimes we facilitate the effective service or connection of those services to communities that need it in a much more effective way. And so I do think that we serve as a catalyst for fulfilling the purposes of those other initiatives and vice versa. Their resources support uh, our objectives as well as we try to undivide divided communities or connect divided communities or give voice to communities that have been silent in the past. Um, and particularly, you know, for us, a huge perspective is to help um, communities that are not going to be the ones going to their district and saying, I want my child to become bilingual and, multi and multicultural because they don't have the they don't have the tool set necessary to know how to navigate our system of education to even advocate for their children. Sometimes these other organizations are helping those parents to advocate for their children. And so making the connection between our programs and those um, agencies that are helping to support parental advocacy is critical because then it helps parents become aware of what these programs can offer their children and they can advocate for the children for the programs. I mean, it's just a quick example of what you see. It's a powerful example. Step back for just a moment to that which touched my heart deeply and I think is of a special importance is the you don't wait for a community to become undivided in order to establish such a program as dual language immersion, that dual language immersion can actually help to bring back the unity that can create a community once again. Do you have 
examples, stories for that that you can share with our listeners? I'm going to refer back to that same school where this little boy argued that he was Mexican, but I have the same example. In the opposite side of the state, we have a community that sits up high uh, in the mountains here above Park City, and it's just a one school district. It has one elementary, one middle school. They're small. But again, they also have historical decades of a very vibrant migrant community that uh, has served their their community. Um, and uh, uh, in the past, their local elementary school, this has happened in both of those districts. Uh, in the past, um, all of the volunteers at the school were the local English-speaking parents. The, the Hispanic parents were never even saw how they could be part of that volunteer effort. They felt inadequate. They didn't have the set of skills. They they really not fluent English speakers. So their confidence level, a lot of them may not have had formal education. So they felt inadequate to contribute to that effort. When we open <laughs> the immersion programs, um, here in Utah, we're very focused on making sure that at classroom environment in the partner language, in this case, Spanish, uh, it's very much an immersion setting. There is no English in that class, not visually, not spoken, because we're trying to maximize maximum exposure to the partner language, Spanish, and, and usage. So we make a call out and sometimes we go out and actually use other organizations that are in touch with our Hispanic community to hold meetings. And then we go in and we ask them to be the volunteers in the Spanish classroom because we cannot have the English speaking parents in there. And so all of a sudden, those parents have a place, a critical role in the school that cannot be fulfilled by the other parents who have historically been the ones that the school relied on. And the beauty of this is that from that experience of bringing these Hispanic parents into the school in this role, we see an increase in the request for play dates across the communities. And all of a sudden, the dynamics of the communities change. And it's a beautiful transformation. It's truly watching inclusivity grow because of what is happening at that local school and expanding into the community. And that is a beautiful thing to watch, Nora. It's a beautiful thing to hear you tell us about today, Ophelia. One more item then. Here is an opportunity I invite you to look out virtually (laughs) to our listening audience and say, before we leave today, this conversation, I really feel it's important to say, to exhort, to explain, to invite, whatever verb or verbs come to your mind. What final 
message would you like to leave for our listeners today? I urge you, if you are not already convinced that the gift of language and culture not only changes the individual student, expands the educational opportunity of students, strengthens the societies that we live in, that you take the time to research and better understand why this gift is not a gift that we want to pass on on. That if there is anything in your power that you can do to open the opportunities of gifting your students in your community, language and culture, I urge you to find the reasons and the rationale why this would serve your community of students well. Ophelia Wade, thank you so much for what you have shared, both the information and the passion, the stories and the data and results. And thank you for sharing that today on this podcast. Thank you, Nora, for giving us a platform where we can share um, the importance of advocating for language and culture on behalf of our students. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. As an educator, you have the power to reimagine and reshape education and thus the world. Vista Higher Learning is committed to giving you the best programs and resources to ensure that your students succeed in school and in life. Vista is committed to being your partner in education. Bring Vista along for your education journey. For more information about Vista solutions for your K-12 classroom, visit vistahigherlearning.com.